Cassandra Kane has a whole new city of uh, criminals to beat up in Batgirl kicking assassins. And then Star Trek, the Kelvin universe, boldly goes where someone else has gone before. In Star Trek, Volume 1, straight ahead. Welcome to the Classy Comics Podcast, where we search for the best comics in the universe. From Boise, Idaho, here is your host, Adam Graham. Well, we start off with with Batgirl kicking assassins. And this uh, particular book came right after the Fresh Blood crossover with Tim Drake, which we covered a few weeks ago and didn't like that much. Now, this book starts out with Cassandra Kane being uh, new to Bloodhaven and learning. She goes and she trains with uh, an ex-assassin named Onyx. And after they practice, she takes off her mask and Onyx tells her to put it back on. Uh, and Cassandra points out that Onyx doesn't wear a mask. And Onyx says that's because when she was younger and stupid and arrogant, she uh, didn't uh, protect her identity, and so she can't have um, an actual life away from all of the craziness of crime fighting. And she doesn't want Cassandra to go down that same path telling her she has a face and to just protect that. And I think that's some solid advice. In the first issue, we get to see a lot of Cassandra going around, working her way into uh, intimidating some criminals until she finally gets in uh, touch with one who, having uh, been beaten up by Batman and escaped to Gotham City, doesn't care to experience it again and essentially agrees to be a snitch and to sell out the penguin. And at the end of the first issue in this collection, she gets our new headquarters, which is paid for by uh, Bruce Wayne, and it's has uh, it's set in an old subway station, and it's all boarded up on the outside, and it looks really condemned and run down. But she's like, I love it. And I like, first of all, that she really likes this location. Uh, and I think it is a cool location for a headquarters. Uh, I also appreciate, because this one was from 2005. We weren't to the point in comics uh, where people were so scared of being helped by Batman that Batman was just going to come in and take over everything. So she's just uh, appreciative and uh, likes the setup. It has a supercomputer which is voice powered and uses a lot of pictures to make up for the fact that she has very limited reading skills because of her upbringing. There's a cafe down the street from her and she strikes up a friendship with the lady who runs it and it, there are little bits in most issues involving the uh, lady from the cafe, and it's pretty nice. It doesn't go a whole lot of places or get into any depth in this book, but you can definitely see something uh, developing here in terms of actually making friends. 
In the second issue, she ends up fighting the Brotherhood of Evil, although it doesn't first look like that as she uh, attacks a man, but it turns out to be the shapeshifter uh, woman, Gemini, who is part of the Brotherhood of Evil, along with uh, Mala and the Brain. And we have talked about a comic in which the Brotherhood of Evil appeared back when I did my review of Titans Volume 4. And in that one, I thought the Brotherhood was kind of pathetic. Well, first of all, Gemini wasn't part of it. And they were just, uh, it was just a kind of, like they were just a couple of has-beens. But here, they're, they're really intimidating. Mala, you know, has got this very you know, intimidating physical build. Even the brain has got uh, kind of like some armor. And, of course, Gemini is very tough. So it's a three-on-one situation with them being very skilled uh, fighters. And uh, even though uh, Cassandra's got these amazing abilities, she ends up uh, thrown into the ocean and assumed dead by the Brotherhood. And as she's in the water, she has a vision of Spoiler, uh, who had just died in the comics. Though, of course, uh, Stephanie Brown would get better. And also recalling her childhood, how she was raised to be an assassin, and how far she's come. But she does manage to escape from this with her life, and she gets back to her headquarters. And she sits down and she watches video of the Brotherhood in action. And this was taken from Beast Boy and from others who had engaged them previously. She also notes that Gemini's mother was one of the founding members of the Brotherhood and wonders if Gemini is bad because her mother is bad. And that gets her to thinking about herself and uh, her background with uh, her dad and her mom whose identity she's not really sure of at this point. She then encounters the Brotherhood again, and having watched the video and learned how they move, she is able to defeat them in pretty much short order. And it's a really a good moment for her because essentially she's not taking down a, a single supervillain. She's taking down an entire supervillain team. And I like that they didn't have her do it in the first encounter because it makes it a bit more believable and relatable That she, and shows how she is able to adapt. In the next issue uh, of the book, she is invited to a party by the cafe owner where the, she's having a lot of friends over. And she goes and, uh, which which is something that's unusual for her because she hasn't really had a normal life. So she starts to get a little bit of a taste of that normalcy, uh, but that's pretty much interrupted when Deathstroke uh, shows up. Uh, because a contract's been put out by the Penguin, uh, you know, after she's uh, survived the attempt of the uh, Brotherhood of Evil. Uh, and Deathstroke, at first it looks like he's come after her and is there to fulfill the contract. But he actually just leads uh, Cassandra as Batgirl to his daughter, a Ravager. 
And I have to admit, I kind of internally groaned at this because I've read comics where you have a, a young female lead and the supervillain, instead of it being the supervillain she fights, it's the supervillain's daughter. And I just like, oh, not again. But I actually think in the final issue, this does turn out really well. Because as she fights uh, Ravager, she actually learns about Ravager's character through her fighting style, through her body language, and is able to understand and then learn how to predict what she's going to do. And figures, is she like me? No, she's not quite like me. There are differences. And it's interesting how she is able to detect all of this from body movement and fighting style. And that makes her a really different sort of character. And it's really well handled and well written. And it ends up in a situation where... Uh, in order to avoid someone dying, uh, Cassandra takes an action that essentially alleviates the threat of her being killed at the moment, still leaves her open to uh, possible threats in the future just because she wants to avoid killing. Overall, I continue to really enjoy the Cassandra Kane books. Uh, this particular book shows that the whole... Uh, fresh blood crossover thing was just entirely unnecessary, particularly from Cassandra Kane's perspective, uh, because essentially, if you hadn't had that crossover, this is where uh, the previous two issues would have gone. And the way she views the world and interprets stuff is really unique. So I continue to enjoy her mid-2000s run as Batgirl. And I'll give this book a rating of classy. Now we move on to Star Trek Volume 1. And this one comes from the uh, Kelvin universe. Now, to understand the what, what I mean by the Kelvin universe is these are based on the uh, reboot uh, Star Trek films uh, where there's this alternate timeline that was created uh, when uh, Captain Kirk's father uh, died uh, on board the USS Kelvin. So this is set in the timeline that creates. And when it comes to the Kelvin movies, it seems to be that you either absolutely love them or you hate them with the fury of a thousand suns. My thoughts on it is that it's kind of okay. Um, I thought the first movie was flawed, but it was still had a lot of fun in it. The second movie wasn't completely horrible, but it had so much stuff in it that was stupid and felt like a uh, recycled, much lesser version of Star Trek II uh, The Wrath of Khan. Uh, but then I thought Star Trek Beyond was really, really good. And, you know, that appears to have been the last film in the series, so it left on a high note. So I have mixed feelings on it. I still prefer the original universe, but since it's an alternate timeline, you can kind of have your cake and eat it too. You don't have to uh, totally exclude one to enjoy the other. Now let's turn to talk about Star Trek Volume 1. The Star Trek ongoing series began with the idea that they were going to 
take stories that had been done in the original series universe and then redo them in the Kelvin universe, which didn't strike me as an immediately bad idea. This book, there are two different stories that were done over the course of four issues. The first is Where No Man Has Gone Before. This story focused on a friend of Kirk's, Gary Mitchell, uh, obtaining some extreme godlike powers after an incident occurred in space. And he becomes more arrogant and more power-mad and dangerous as time goes on. And the Enterprise has to consider taking some very extreme actions, and those decisions fall to Captain Kirk. Both of these stories were pretty condensed, and one thing that they did get rid of in their take-on where no man has gone before is the romantic uh, angle between Gary and Elizabeth. The condensing of the story was necessary because you had an hour on television and you can't really communicate that in 40-some pages of a comic book. And I think it kind of works here the way that it's uh, condensed down because it focuses more on Kirk and what this decision means and the, uh, you know, the personal conflict that comes with having to uh, deal with a friend who has become a danger to the ship that he is sworn uh, to protect. And the friendship between Gary and how Gary had helped Kirk in the past. So it works in far, as far as making those elements more prominent and fleshing that out. Though it mostly tends to follow the same beats as the original story, though as I said, it's somewhat condensed. The second story here is Gemini 7. Now this one from the original series... Uh, the Enterprise was on a vital mission to deliver some really important supplies, but Kirk uh, saw that they had some time, and uh, they came across uh, a, uh, a quasar uh, that they want to study. The Federation Commissioner objects to this, and I, one thing I'll say for the comic adaptation is it does make the Federation Commissioner more reasonable. However, what happens is that the Galileo 7 is brought into uh, the nearby planet's uh, atmosphere and crashes. And it's uh, commanded by uh, Commander Spock, and you also have Dr. McCoy and uh, Scotty on board, along with a few red shirts. And the Enterprise uh, wants to uh, locate them and to save them, but they've got a limited amount of time because lives depend on them getting to their destination as they're carrying vitally needed medical supplies. The adaptation here really does miss the point of the original story. Because this was really a Spock story. This was a chance to see how Spock commands, how Spock deals with leading a crew of humans. 
uh, because the original uh, Starfleet crew was pretty much all humans uh, plus Spock, uh, from what we saw in the Enterprise. So you got to see, how do you lead people who are just very, very different from you? And how do you command? How do you save the day when it's up to you, Kirk's not around, how does Spock do that? And I think the original story uh, shows that as Spock makes a series of very difficult decisions and then has kind of a last uh, moment uh, spur uh, of inspiration that allows the Enterprise to uh, spot them and that saves the day. In this case, what happens is Uhura steals a shuttle and comes to his rescue. And while I understand that you're wanting to include female empowerment in the comics, you essentially miss the entire point of the story. This was Spock's story to tell us about Spock. Though I think with the movies and the way they played out, it may not even have been as necessary. So you may have been telling a story that was uh, somewhat pointless to adapt in a lot of the events of the films. And then you get this line from Kirk once they get back onto the ship where he tells Spock and Uhura that he is confining them to quarters for hours of shared confinement. <sighs> so cheesy and in a really bad way. This wasn't the worst thing in the world, but having read it, I really question the wisdom of... Uh, adapting Star Trek uh, TOS stories with really minor changes. You know, if you're going to do a story and there's something in the universe and the way these characters are that produces something different, that produces a twist or something that we didn't see, then I can see the point of that. But telling original TOS stories with slight variations, that doesn't work well. I should also point out there are some issues with the details in the art. Because Chris Pine, who plays uh, Kirk in the films, has uh, blue eyes. Zach Quanto, who plays Spock, has brown eyes. And yet the artist managed to actually reverse that a few times. And so that's not the hugest factor, but overall, I will give this one a rating of not classy. It has some detail issues and just doesn't add a whole lot to the stories that it adapts, and so feels kind of pointless. It makes one maybe a little better and another maybe a little worse, but there needs to be a bit more originality than just pure rehashes. But we will give Batgirl Kicking Assassins a rating of classy. She's a fun character, and there are some very original things about her that are brought out in this book. And I like a lot of how this character comes along. All right, well, that will do it for today. Uh, join us back next time for another episode of the Classy Comics Podcast. Remember to rate and review the show on iTunes and uh, send your comments to ClassyComicsGuy at gmail.com and be sure and follow me on Twitter at ClassyComicsGuy. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off. <laughs>